just forgive me if I sound frazzled. I've just been reading the news way too much. <laughs> My brain is like in a weird place. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I mean, the news is disturbing and there's a lot of it right now. Um, right. And so, no, I, I appreciate you hopping in. Uh, you know, uh, folks, you are listening to a another edition of the Corner Store Podcast, uh, a quarantined edition, and I'm on a Zoom call with uh, just a really um, brilliant writer um, and, and someone whose work I admire. Emily Yoon is in the Corner Store. Emily, welcome, and uh, it's great to see you. Thank you for inviting me. No, thank you. Thanks for hopping in. You said you were you you were in, you're in Hawaii. Yeah, so my husband, David, got a job at the University of Hawaii last year. So we moved here last fall or end of summer. And yeah, he started teaching last fall. Um, I've been here since March. I was in Chicago um, writing my dissertation. And we've been sheltering in here. And I haven't been able to go back to Chicago, unfortunately. Um, But I plan to go back in July because we need to clean out our Chicago apartment, very sadly. Yeah. Well, so, I, I mean, ha- Hawaii seems like a good place to be in shelter, um, <laughs> but I have no idea. What has what the experience been like for you uh, during this really kind of odd time? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's been a really painful and bizarre time for everybody, right? But... In Hawaii, yeah, there were way fewer cases of COVID here. Um, There continues to be very few confirmed cases. So it feels, I mean, it is very physically far from the rest of the United States, um, but it just feels like a different country. Um, And I've been feeling like I've, I was really disconnected from my communities, my friends um, who are in Chicago, New York, other cities. But I've I've been trying my best to just keep up with what's happening across the nation and still trying to stay safe and healthy. Um, There are a lot of people, you know, going out and I guess trying to, I guess, go back to their quote unquote normal routines here. Um, But David and I have been just really careful, and we haven't really left the apartment <laughs> um, since March. So, yeah, it's just a weird disconnect that I'm feeling. Sure, no, that makes sense. And and what is what is the vibe uh, in in Hawaii now around so much of what is happening in streets across across the country? Um, so there have been rallies here as well for Black Lives Matter, and. Fortunately, the police didn't intervene in violent ways. Um, from what I understand, as someone who basically just moved here, um, I think there are better police community relations here. And from what, again, from what I understand, um, a lot of the people of the police here are actually people from the community, you know, not like police from the suburbs and other cities who come into cities to. You know, an act brutality upon the citizens. So I think definitely it is a different relationship and atmosphere. But I I don't really have the authority to speak too much on that. Um, it's just I just feel lucky that people protesters here haven't been subject to 
to police brutality as as much as protesters across the nation. Word. Now, of course, I, I, I know you from, from some of the work you've done in Chicago and just your work in general as a writer. How, how long were you in, in Chicago? Because you were studying where? You were studying at uh, your dissertation work is where? Um, so I moved to Chicago in 2015 to start uh, in the Department of East Asian Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago. Um, currently, I'm in my fifth year of the PhD program, writing my dissertation on Korean feminist poetry. Wow, word! Uh, how how is it how is it coming? Um, it's it's coming along. I'm I'm making part in the United States. Her last collection, well, not her last collection, but the collection that was last translated into English by Don Mitre, um, called Autobiography of Death won many accolades, including the Griffin Award in Canada. So she has gained a lot of international traction. So, yeah, I'm writing a chapter on her. Um, I recently finished a chapter on actually Korean-American feminist poetry, focusing on the poems of Kathy Park Hong and Franny Che. So, yeah, I'm making progress, even though it feels it feels weird to be writing literary criticism in a time when, you know, it seems like everything is falling apart. You know, I have to really take a time to dissociate from everything that's happening in our material world and put myself back in the zone, which has been pretty tough. I would imagine there is probably some crossover, though, that, like, you know, Korean women... Korean feminist poetry might also have, and I'm sure has something to teach us about this moment too. You know, I wonder just like with, you know, some of the notions of intersectionality, like how does what you're writing and studying now kind of help inform, you know, the ways you might process or or look into what's happening now, if at all. Right, absolutely. So I think studying Korean poetry and feminist traditions and also writing about those gives me um, context for my own position living as a poet in the United States and helps me kind of unlearn the imperialist imperialist ways of, you know, applying our theories to other contexts, right, to the Korean cultural movements and etc. So I'm learning about different forms of resistance and how literature was such a central part in many South Korean political movements. And in analyzing poems and autobiography of death, um, it's been a lot of searching involved because Kim Yasun's poems, if you're familiar at all, um, are very often described as avant-garde and surrealist um, and abstract in a more broader sense and so I have to really dig deeper to to see what's what's written between the lines and how they apply to specific Korean contexts um, for example there are a lot of poems about um, well I can't say a lot right but there are poems about um, specifically the very incident of 2014 um 
and the sailor, which was a ferry that sank, and the government was very late in responding to that disaster, um, in rescuing the people from the ferries. And that, that connects to like this neoliberalism of South Korean government and how it ties to the neoliberal rule of the United States and the, the presence of the United States in South Korea as well. So I'm just making all these connections and looking at poetry as a means to uh, wield language, to challenge the centrality of these governing um, oppressive forces in our lives. Um, I know this sounds all very also abstract and grandiose, but... Not not really. I mean, it sounds appropriate. <laughs> I mean, I, right? It's, I mean, I, I, and I think that there are a lot of strategies that people utilize in order to... Um, Think critically about police presence. Uh, you know, there, there. You know, and there, there's a lot of ways to historic examples of how to engage or counter uh, some of this colonial presence. And you know, I, I mean, this. So it makes sense, I think. Right. So I'm trying to make a trans-Pacific link in how you know poetry is a medium that views language as a tool to topple these forces. Right. And when I was writing poems about. Um, Kathy Park, I'm not writing poems for my chapter, all the poems by Kathy Park Hong and Franny Che, um, I was really interested in how they invent languages right, in their poems or uh, kind of break the, lang- the English language to really um, oppose the centrality of standard, the standardized language as something that governs us um, so I'm trying to make that connection with South Korean feminist poetry as well, but you know, my dissertation is not fully formed yet, so these thoughts still have to materialize in a meaningful and analytic way. Sure. But I like the direction that it's going, um, and it's been a joy to finally write about things I want to write about, you know, because previously in grad school you have to do a lot of things you don't want to do. <laughs> so. Well, it, it sounds like a, a really fascinating and important project, but of course, not only do you write about poems, but you also are, are a really, you know, incredibly fine poet. Um, your book, a, a Cruelty Special to Our Species, uh, is, is, is brilliant and um, excavates a, a history um, that I think, you know, certainly I wasn't necessarily uh, aware of. Um, but, I, you know, and even before we kind of talk about the book, I, I just, how did you begin? As a writer, like when when did that come into your life? So, I've been writing since I was five, I guess. So, um, I was in a creative writing after school class in elementary school in in Korea, and before that, I would always be writing stories and drawing pictures with my sister and like showing them to my to my parents. Uh, and actually when I was eight I started writing a novel that was very loosely based on Harry Potter (laughs) so I would write a page a day that was when I was the most disciplined as a writer (laughs) at eight at eight yeah and I also wrote fan fiction based on uh, of Pokemon Uh, but the difference is it's interesting the fan fiction that I wrote when I was little um all the characters were were femmes and women. <laughs> Interestingly, I guess 
I was I obviously didn't have the tools, the analytical tools to think about, you know, how gender is operating in these stories, but I guess I wanted to be reflected in my own stories. So yeah, I would show them to my sister, I would show them to my mom, who would then show it to all her friends and you know even from a very young age I kind of knew that I wanted to continue writing and then in high school I was in Canada and this is when I became serious about writing again I had a brief respite because I, I there were there were years when I thought I was more interested in fashion than I was in poetry I was like oh I'm going to become I don't know a fashion designer or something. I had these really weird impressions of myself. But then I took, I started taking a creative writing class um, in high school. I think I was in 10th grade. And I had a really great writing teacher who was primarily a poet. His name is Terrence Young. He has since retired. But, you know, he really instilled a very big passion for poetry specifically in, I think, all of us. So that's when I crossed over to the dark side of poetry from fiction, and ever since I've been I've been hooked. Yeah, um, and what do you what did your folks think as you started to gravitate more seriously to wanting to be a writer? Uh, what did what did your folks think about, or what did they think about it then? My parents always encouraged me to to continue writing and studying literature, which I'm very grateful for. And I know that's not the experience of everyone, but my parents were very supportive. Um, they continue to be supportive, but actually their level of support is kind of at the perfect level. It's like a mix of you know, cheer and uh, like disinterest. <laughs> like, well, first of all, they you know, can't really, they're not very proficient in English. So it's not like they can read my poems the way native speakers can. But when my publications come out or when I receive accolades or when my book came out, they were very happy. They were just not that interested in <laughs> reading them. <laughs> they were like, that's your thing, do it. Um, and sometimes my mom would be like, can you just summarize your poems for me? And I'd like I can't. That's, that's, that's real. My parents, my parents um, also do not take interest or have also have not read my work. Um, <laughs> which you know, it is what it is. What 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 do or did your parents do for a living? Um, to support me. Yeah. Um, in terms of their jobs. Yeah. Oh, their jobs. Um. They're, they're both doctors. My mom has kind of retired. She she retired when she moved to Canada with me and my sister when we were um, 10 and 12. Where in Canada? We moved to Victoria, B.C., okay. which is on Vancouver Island. It's like an hour away from Vancouver, B.C., uh, by ferry. It's very close to Seattle as well. So the weather is like... And the, the weather and the landscape are very similar to like the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. Um, yeah, so we moved there. My, my dad stayed behind as the sole breadwinner. Um, so my mom gave up her dentistry practice to go with us. And then he has gone back to Korea 
my my sister also went back, so I'm the only one in North America at this point. And when my mom went back to Korea after I graduated from high school and moved to Philadelphia for college, um, she kind of took on a job as an animal rights activist. So she was involved in a lot of rescue organizations, uh, organizing, founding, donating, all the community outreach, all of that. Um, She's not doing a lot of that anymore, but that was her thing (laughs) after that history. Um, My dad's a dermatologist still. Okay, wow. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, so you are becoming a doctor, though, in your own right, obviously. <laughs> right, like a doctor of philosophy. And I have a sense that my dad always wanted to be, like, a PhD, or I think he always wanted to study the humanities. Liter- he loved literature and film, music. But I think he realized, A, he doesn't have the talents. <laughs> um, I don't know if it's true, that's how he thinks. Um, and... I guess when he was growing up at that time in Korea, you know, if you were smart, you know, you either go to law school or or medical school. So that's what he did. But he really wanted to become a teacher, actually. And do you think that's part of the reason why your parents have been supportive of your foray into the arts, into the life of the mind? Yeah, I think so. I think, first of all, it's just my extreme privilege. being born under parents who were you know, financially secure, um, I didn't feel the pressure to you know, find a job as soon as possible and start supporting my family. They just really wanted me to spend my time honing my craft, looking for what I want to do. So I recognize that. Um, but I think also, since they were war slash R doctors, um, they kind of realized I'm not fit for something like that. <laughs> um, they said, you know, it's it's a very emotionally involved work, and you can't be, you know, too psychologically wrapped around like every single case. Like in some points, there are times when you have to be methodical about what you do. But um, they thought that I wouldn't be able to handle that type of stress. So. They were, even from a very young age, they were like, don't become a doctor. Oh, wow. Yeah, which is kind of unusual. Um, yeah. But then what is also unusual is that then you go into a field, and particularly you do, you do a kind of writing that is very emotionally involved, that seems to be, you know, very methodical. That seems, you know, I mean, your, your book is, you know, is, is a excavation of history. I mean, if you could talk a little about it, and like, there seems to be, Something that you know, maybe maybe it's that work ethic, you know, that your parents instilled in you knowingly, unknowingly, just by osmosis, that you also apply to the the discipline uh, of writing. Yeah, I mean, they definitely had an effect on me as a person and as a writer because they always emphasize uh, emphasize empathy, and even as doctors, um, they always said you know. It's, not about the money, it's about serving the people. So they really emphasize compassion and um, they would always remind me that you're not rich, I'm, I'm rich. <laughs> like, we're not going to give you a lot of money as inheritance. You have to 
you know, you have to find ways to get back to the world yourself um, and find the means to do that. Um, they've been telling me that since I was like four, hmm. <laughs> which I don't know if it's like appropriate or not, but anyway. <laughs> um, but yeah, I started writing about comfort women, uh, which really lie in the nucleus of my book um, because I grew up in Korea until I was 10 and you know, I knew about their presence right, and their history because it's very much ingrained into our collective memory as Koreans um, but then I think it had the effect of you know kind of desensitizing me to it in a in a in a way which is messed up you know but it's like something we yeah it's know. common it's common of uh, course can, can, and I kind of, do you mind yeah. mentioning do you mind mentioning just um can you can you qualify what comfort women uh what that phrase is right uh, so it's it's a euphemistic term so in korea or when i use the term in writing i would put it around quotes right um quotation marks um, but it's a euphemistic term, basically, to refer to sex slaves of the Japanese military in their wars um, in the late 30s, early 40s, when they when Japan was still an empire. Now, most of the women who became comfort women were Koreans, and they were either tricked or taken to these military camps to become prostitutes for the soldiers. Um, and in South Korea right now, there is only a handful of these women um, who who came out as you know, former comfort women alive. Um, they're over 90 years old. So, yeah, it's, it's a very painful memory in Korea. It's still, it's still an unresolved issue. In South Korea, actually, there's a big controversy because the biggest organization, uh, I think that started in in the 90s, uh, the biggest organization for like, providing support to these women and publicizing their stories um, is now uh, under investigation for how they used the donations and income. So it's like a very fraught matter even now. But anyway, I started writing about them in New York when I was in my MFA program at NYU because again, I thought this was something that kind of everyone knew, right? Um, And I think I realized that actually a lot of Americans don't know much about wars that their own country <laughs> was involved in, including the Second World War. Facts, yeah. So, yeah, so I kind of started writing about the Korean War and Second World War, and I didn't mean to write a whole book about these women, but I just found myself coming back to them, to their testimonies and their history. So that's kind of how it un- unraveled very organically and all of a sudden yeah yeah no and this i mean this book has been really well received and it's it's an important contribution to that history and then to i mean it 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 is a um i also like to dig into history a lot and kind of represent it and um you know 
use it as a way to instruct how in the ways that we think about now. Um, and, I, and I guess, you know, since, since that collection, I mean, what, what, what you're working on the dissertation now, but are you also working on another collection? Are you writing, do you have the space to write poems at all now? Um, to be honest, and I hope this helps poets who are looking into getting into PhD programs, not in creative writing. It's been a huge struggle to find time for poetry. Um, and I, I think I naively thought that it would be easier, you know, that both practices would be in conversation with each other and other you know, realms of thought that, yeah, I just thought it would be easier, but it wasn't for me. <laughs> it's still not for me. Um, but I found that it's, really important to set aside time to dedicate to poetry where it just shut off the dissertation part of the brain um, because otherwise this is, this is not going to happen so every summer I had been trying to go to like a writing retreat where I can have a concentrated piece of time right, for poetry um, but yeah honestly I haven't written many poems since I moved to Chicago but I do have to say that, again, uh, doing literary criticism and literary history informs the way I think about poetry and my position as a poet in society and how we use poetry as a tool to, to encourage empathy right, across cultures, across communities, across languages. So, so it has been really, in studying literature, has been really helpful in contextualizing myself and theorizing my own existence. So I hope that all, all, all that I learned will feed into my poems and hopefully uh, lead to a more mature collection. Um, hopefully in the next 10 years, not like 100 years, which you know is the pace that I'm going right now. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Before 100 years, I look forward to reading. <laughs> yeah, that's the goal. Yeah. Um, well, look, I, 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 there is there's a lot going on in the world, and, and, and one of the things that I, I wanted to ask you about is that you're, you're also a Ruth Lidley Fellow um, from the Poetry okay. Foundation, and there's been, um, you know, there was a letter written um, to the Poetry Foundation about their statement in this moment and the call and then I think today the resignation of the president um, right. and so I, I just I wonder like how and where I, you know I don't know all the ins and outs of it at all but but I wonder where you where you're at with it um, and and what what your relationship to to that space is and, and just how you're feeling in this moment if you've been privy to seeing some of that, uh, you know, take place in the space of of uh, social media. Yeah, so a lot has happened regarding the Poetry Foundation, and they're very you know, disappointing for sentence statement <laughs> on Black Lives Matter. Um, and I've been uh, honestly, it's been really hard to keep up with all the conversations that are happening around that um, but I was deeply saddened when I read their statement the aforementioned statement and I really believe that they can do better right? Like 
there are good people working for the foundation um in dalmi yeah one of yeah of course um, and you know i think that even the editors of the poetry magazine like i to be honest i believe that they want to do better um but for whatever reason they haven't been able to you know, step up to the challenge and prove things through themselves to be people who are trying to be better um and you know my feelings honestly have been fought because like Philip B. Williams said in in their letter that you know we've all been complicit as people who benefited from the resources of the poetry foundation myself as a fellow and a contributor to the poetry magazine um and yeah I my fraught feelings were very much entangled in like a mixture of privilege, um, personal feelings about certain individuals in the foundation, as well as the desire to push the foundation to a better future. So I was having all these thoughts, um, and then a few folks in, I guess, the community of fellows, I don't know, a few fellows um, stepped up and started drafting the letter, and then I was looped in to the process. Um, and I'm really, really proud of the people who initiated this. Uh, and I was happy to put my signature under it. And I saw, I just saw actually before this interview that the president and the chair resigned. Um, I was again surprised that it was such a short announcement. And then there was, there wasn't anything else that followed. <laughs> the change in leadership, so I hope there is more coming. Um, but I'm also uh, reading other responses, like to the letter that their bills started and the other letters, documents that started after. And also keeping in mind all the critiques that people have leveled before any of these letters were born. So I'm keeping myself educated on this and I will continue to advocate for change in the foundation. And I think at this point, that's all I can say. Yeah. Um, no, thank you. I mean, thank you for that. And thank you for your candor and just speaking on it at all. I know it's not easy and you're right. I think to your point, like there are four sentence statement uh, in a time where empathy is is at least needed it was it did not seem to be present you know definitely and i was also thinking about just my you know status as an east asian woman you know going to these spaces um i never felt you know threatened right or felt unwelcome in the same way that black folks might have felt or readers might have felt and I'm just thinking about my privilege as an East Asian person, and I'm trying my best to have these conversations with other East Asian people around me um, about institutional racism and what Asians should do in this time. And honestly, it hasn't been the easiest, right? Because of course, racism against Asians exists. But I think that a lot of people, a lot of Asians are using that hurt to de- delegitimize Black Lives Matter and the fight for 
racial justice. So, well, isn't that one of the insidious things about whiteness is that it divides people who would be in solidarity with one another very deliberately in order to have those fractions and in order to produce friction between communities that ought to be, uh, you know, in comradeship with one another. But it it pits them, whiteness, capitalism pits people against one another, I think, for the reason to maintain those seats and bastions of power, you know. Right, exactly, right. Um, I mean, racism, stereotyping is used as a technology, right, to pit, pit people of color against one another. And it's a very effective technology. <laughs> um, and I've also been having conversations with my friends in Korea um, and been keeping up with online discourse as well from Korean platforms. And I was very saddened to find that a lot of you know media representations of Black Lives Matter focus on you know the looting of, for example, like Korean stores or businesses owned by Korean immigrants, which further again delegitimizes this movement, right? And it puts the focus in a very small part of what's happening across the country. Um, but I'm also encouraged that there were also protests in South Korea for Black Lives Matter. I think, you know, more people have to realize that black people also exist in Korea. That <laughs> is not just an American issue, like something far away from us. Right. Uh, so I've been having, having these dialogues and learning from them as well, like what's missing. So... Yeah. Yeah. Good. Well, that's, that's important work. I mean, I think, you know, particularly like, you know, the, the sometimes real and the, I think often inflated antagonism between the black and the Korean community in this country is something that is, you know, I remember around the Rodney King, uh, beating and, and, you know, um, on hip hop records that I loved, there was, uh, you know, you know, um, anti-Korean rhetoric on some of those records in part that demonstrated a, uh, a, a you know a, a, a kind of feeling that was like well these folks are new to this country um, in, in this regard or to this community at least and and yet you know kind of you know stand uh, a run up in uh, the capitalist ladder or the class ladder in this country and therefore some sort of resentment uh, is is perpetrated between these communities, um, which is a, which is the American story, you know. Um, you know, particularly I think with with black folks, any ethnic group that comes into the country is uh, given a a f- uh, step up from from black folks in this country by design. Um, right, right, and you know, I think there are two kinds of imaginations working together to make Asians uh, oppose Black Lives Movement, which is, I mean, I, I don't mean all Asians, right? Of course, I, I feel sad that I have to even say that, but recently online there was someone who was like, you know, I'm too busy uh, defending Asians to be fighting for Black people, like, to me. Oh, wow. Okay, you know, who, who said anything about not protecting your community. But anyway, 
So, um, there is something that Dorothy Wong calls the constitutive and immutable alienness, alienness attributed to Asians. Okay, but we're always seen as the other, like the foreign, no matter how many generations you've been here. Um, and it's something that a lot of Asian immigrants accept, right? Like, oh, we're just immigrants here and we're not really a part of this larger fabric of history. So therefore, you know, like Black Lives Matter and everything that has to do with other races or ethnicities, like, are really not our concern. So there's one, that imagination that's operating in a lot of Asian communities, uh, in a lot of Asian people's minds here. Um, but then there's also like the imagination that somehow we're adjacent to whiteness, right? There were like an honorary member of whiteness. And I think these two things are working in tandem to prevent a lot of Asian immigrants um, or Asian Americans from participating in the move for racial justice, which is very sad, but I think conversations are still developing. There are a lot of Asian scholars and activists out there who are fighting for solidarity and wider reaching empathy. Um, and I'm proud of the organization that I work for, the Asian American Writers Workshop, um, that not only promote uh, community across Asian communities, right? Because I, I myself acknowledge that East Asian East Asians have been given the most visibility in conversations about Asianness, um, but also AAWW works really hard to to also participate in advancing justice for for everyone in the country. So there's work being done, and there's more work that needs to be done. I hope I can partake meaningfully or continue to partake. Yeah, no, well, I, I think you are, and I, I appreciate you, and I appreciate this conversation. Um, Emily, where's where's the best place for people to be in tune with the work that you're doing and uh, online, or what's what, where's where's a good space to to get at you and and, and learn more about you? So I have a personal website, um, but it's like a Tumblr site. Sorry, right. <laughs> kind of funny to say, but you know, if you just search Emily Jungmin Yoon, my website will come up. I should really buy a URL that's like emilyyoon.com or something, but I've been too lazy. Somebody probably owns it and wants to sell it to you for way more than you could buy it. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll get around exploring <laughs> soon. Um, and I'm I usually post my work on Twitter as well. So Twitter is somewhere else that people can find me. My account is public. So yeah, those places. And I encourage people to use IndieBound for <laughs> any book. For sure. For sure. Um, you cut out a little. Uh, you said IndieBound to, to get your books? Yeah, it's just a really great system. I, I don't think it exists in 
Korea at least. Um, when I was in Mexico a few months ago, someone asked me where they can find my book, and I said, do you have a version of Indie Bound here? And at least from that crowd, I, I couldn't find out if there was something like that. So it's like a very um, treasured <laughs> website for me. Yeah, for sure. Oh. Yeah, and people should get your book, A Cruelty to Our Species, um, uh, A Cruelty Special to Our Species, there. And uh, I'm really excited about your dissertation and very much look forward to reading poems uh, in the future, regardless of how slow they come in. Um, thank you so much, and, and, and good luck in Hawaii, and I look forward to you being back in Chicago, uh, hopefully sometime in the summer. Thank you. Stay safe and stay healthy. You too. Thanks for being in the corner store today. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our instagram it's corner underscore pod on ig on twitter tell us who you want to see in the corner store and also please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our patreon account it's patreon.com corner store underscore pod the corner store is brought to you by stolen spirits